Uh, well, welcome. I'm thrilled that you're uh, with us today. Uh, we are in the middle of a conversation on the Lord's Prayer. And whether, you, whether or not you grew up in church, you're probably familiar uh, with the Lord's Prayer. And a lot has been said up until this point, but probably one of the main things that I've been wrestling with um, as we've talked about the Lord's Prayer and prayer in general is why we don't pray, right? Probably a bigger question. You know, you can get into studying things in church and you don't answer that original question. And so it just kind of like, we're like, we, no one's really cares because no one prays. <laughs> and I've been, I've been, is that too honest for church? I've been tackling this issue. Why, why not? Why don't you pray? And the answer that's kept confronting me as we've been going, the, the, the lack of prayer in our lives is often due to a fundamental difficulty that I think we all have with a central claim of Christianity. So no matter if you've been a Christian 20 years or one week, or you're not a Christian at all, I think one of the biggest challenges we have when it comes to actually believing in Christianity is a God of the universe that actually loves you. I think it's one of the biggest challenges that we face as Christians to walk in faith, actually believing, adapting our life in accordance with a God who actually loves us and is near to us. At its root, the reason we don't pray is often because we do not really believe God loves us. We don't believe he's interested in us. We don't believe he's near. Therefore, we do not pray. We don't believe he's concerned with us. We don't believe he wants our, well, uh, our best interest in mind. And we struggle with this. This is the central thing of Christianity. And I'd argue that it's what we all struggle with throughout our life. Now, that might, might not be your case, but it certainly is mine. I tend to be the kind of person who screws up routinely. <laughs> Maybe you're not. But I often find myself heaping shame and guilt, sometimes undo, sometimes do, sometimes not, right? Whether or not I'm heaping it on myself and I find myself in this kind of rat race to earn my way back into God's favor. And then prayer becomes a, an achievement-based, performance-based routine that you do to get yourself back in good favor with God instead of enjoying the favor that you have already, that he has established through Jesus, right? So we said last week is for many Christians, man, I don't care if you've been a Christian 20 years or one week, whatever, right? God's love, his forgiveness, his grace is essentially wasted on us because for many of us, we are convinced that we have to earn it, right? So instead of receiving and enjoying a status and sustenance that we could never achieve or sustain ourselves, right? Instead of feasting on the table, at the table of the Lord, right? We're out back, toiling in the dirt, convinced no one's looking out for us. And if it's gonna happen, it's gonna be because we're in control, right? So we don't pray because we've created in many of our minds a harsh demanding God instead of a God, the God of the Bible, most clearly seen in Jesus. We struggle to believe he loves us. We struggle to believe he's near us and it's why we don't pray. And it's often an issue of faith, not an issue of Discipline. So here's another way to think about it. All right, new illustration for us in this conversation. How do you respond when you are trying to talk to someone and it becomes abundantly clear that the person you are trying to talk to is not listening to you? Yeah. Right? So when, when you're in a conversation and you begin to see indicators and the indicators are pointing to the facts that this person is not interested in what you're saying. They're not listening, they're not engaging. So if you're me, you start making up random nonsense just to see if they pay attention, right? It's like, hey babe, I'm gonna go to the grocery store. Babe, babe, 
I'm gonna go to the grocery store because we're out of eggs and nuclear bombs and clown feet. And I'll go ahead and pick up a small island while we're there. Okay, sounds good, love you, right? So because we don't believe that God is actually involved in listening in your life, we don't pray because when we do, we feel like we're just kind of throwing a coin in the cosmic pond and it doesn't really matter because he's probably not listening anyway. So Jesus gives us, right, what was almost certainly the guiding realities of his own prayer life. It's called the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, And what we've been trying to wrestle with and capture in our imaginations is not just memorizing words, because most of you probably already have it memorized, right? You could probably just do it, right? You already have it memorized. But allowing the depth and the meaning and the substance of what he is saying to land on our souls, okay? So I've been trying this in my own personal life as we've been walking through this. And I'm telling you, man, it has been like gasoline on my worship for God. It's been awesome. We've just been marinating in the substance of this prayer. So, I mean, just, just if you've not been with us, let me just give you a quick recap, right? Our Father, meaning a God who loves you deeply, right? Based on nothing you've done. Prodigal Son comes to mind every time we think about this, right? I'm reminded of who God is and what He's done. Father, right? In the heavens, meaning you are close to me. You've not abandoned me. Yeah, you're high and lifted up, but you're near the brokenhearted. You're with us, near us. You're not far away from us, right? Hallowed be your name, meaning, Lord, let everyone know that there's no one like you. Let everyone know the depths of your wisdom, your faithful love. Let your glory, let your reputation go before you. To all my friends and family, let them know that you're beautiful. Hallowed be thy name, which then brings us to where we are at in the prayer. So let's do it. Every week, we've been saying it together. You guys ready? Let's say it together. It should be on the screen. Here we go. You with me? Okay. I got one, two, maybe. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So today we sit with what Jesus meant when he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this harkens back to something we said week, week one, which is this prayer, believe it or not, is an impressive overview of everything that Jesus taught in his ministry on the earth. He called God Father more than anyone else. He revealed God's nearness to us. He was correcting people's false idea about God over and over. That's hallowed be your name, right? Showing the true nature of God. And if you read the Gospels, you realize, if you're paying attention, which, you know, I'm not gonna, you know, more than anything else, right? Almost all of Jesus's parables are trying to answer this one question. What is the kingdom of God like? Have you ever noticed that? So more often than not, when Jesus told a parable, which was his favorite way to teach, the parable starts with, this is gonna blow your mind, the kingdom of God is like. And then the parable goes on, sometimes called the kingdom of heaven. And we often read the parables and we miss the first bit. The kingdom of God is like, and then we just go on to the moral of the parable, right? So like, for example, Matthew 18, it's a parable of the unmerciful servant. And we're like, oh, well, obviously the moral of the story is we should be merciful. And if we're not merciful, then God's not going to be. No, the moral of the story is the kingdom of God is like uh, this, right? In other words, when the kingdom comes, there's mercy. When the kingdom comes, there's also justice, right? He's trying to explain something to us. He's trying to say, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Jesus is first. So this is his 
primary proclamation. Now, many of us in this room thought the primary proclamation of Christianity was say this prayer so when you die, you can go to heaven. Can I just say to you, that is not what Jesus taught. And if you've been told that's what the good news is, you need to read a little more closely. Because according to Jesus, the good news is that the kingdom of God had come near. The very first thing he says when he starts his ministry, Mark, y'all are looking at me like I'm a heretic, right? Very first thing he says when he starts his ministry, Mark 1:14. you can read it. You probably have a Bible on your phone. You can pull it up, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So let's just logically dissect that sentence just for one second. Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. What's the good news? That the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Jesus said the good news was, right? And it goes on. It's not just one off. Okay, look, book of Acts. After Jesus is murdered and rises again, Acts 1-3, he presents himself alive to his disciples after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The book of Acts then goes on to detail and bookend that what the disciples were talking about primarily, okay? Acts 8, 12 says, Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, and they were baptized both women. And then at the end of Acts, Acts 28, 31, I'm just proving this for you, okay? Paul, under house arrest in Rome, the book of Acts ends with Paul proclaiming, guess what? The kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, it's interesting to me to compare the prevalence of this idea in the New Testament with the prevalence or lack thereof it in the modern American church. So let's just do it, all right? Who grew up not really hearing much about the kingdom? Anyone want to fess up to that? We got a couple. No, okay, just a couple. All right, so it's just not very prevalent in our church culture. And yet, if you read the Gospels, if you read the New Testament, you're gonna see it over and over and over again. Almost every parable, Jesus is gonna say, the kingdom of God is like. So we think often, right, the good news is say this prayer so you can go to heaven, but what about this life? You know, right? If the, if the, if, is Christianity just a religion for death? Is that what we get? And we say this prayer so when you die, you can go to heaven, right? The good news Jesus preached over and over was the kingdom of God had come close to you. So whether or not you've heard much about this, this was the primary proclamation of Jesus and his disciples after him. He was saying that the kingdom of God had come nearer to us in him. He was saying that the kingdom of God was now accessible to us in a totally new way in him, or as he said, it was at hand. That's what he said. Kingdom of God, it was close, it was here already, and yet not here. It was coming here already and not yet. That's kingdom theology. So what is the kingdom? What's he talking about? Is he talking about the second coming? What on earth does he mean? What does this phrase kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God mean? Is he talking about when he comes back and, and writes the world? Is he talking about you know, a physical political kingdom very much like the Jews thought he was talking about? That's what they thought he was talking about. They're like, you mean you're gonna kick the Romans out, right? That's the kingdom, right? Political, is that what he's talking about? Jesus helps us understand what he's talking about in this prayer specifically, because when he says, thy kingdom come, he then says this, thy will be done. So we know that the kingdom of God, whatever it is in total, right, has something to do with the will of God being carried out or ignored, right? So just like today, 
Kingdoms or the sovereignty of nations are delineated by what? Boundaries. And what do those boundaries mark? If we're in Michigan versus the other side of the Great Lakes, right? Go up to Canada, you go up here. What are the boundaries of our nation mark? They mark the sovereignty, the will of our nation, the laws of our nation. If you're here, you better do things the U.S. way or not, or you're gonna, you know? You can go over to Canada, you you know? All these nations are marked by the range of their effective will. So if you're in this nation, you gotta obey these rules in that nation, it's, it's the same, right? Now you have your own kingdom or queendom. You do, right? And you know what's the perfect example of your kingdom? Your body. Because in your body, for the most part, the range of your effective will is done perfectly. I'll prove it to you. Put, put your hand on your knee. Go ahead, do it. How'd you do that? Well, that's within the range of your effective will. Your body's your little kingdom. Now jump up to the sky and you know, dunk a basketball on the rafters. Well, that's not within the range of your effective will. You can't do that. But you can control your body. It's your little kingdom, right? You're looking right up. How are you looking at me right now? Well, that's your kingdom. You're telling your little eyeballs to look at me. Here we are staring at each other, right? Influencing where we have influence, which is your body. It's your kingdom, right? And you're like, this guy has no clue what he's talking about, right? Those are the confines, right, of where your will is done. You have perfect control over your body. When Jesus says God's kingdom is at hand, what he means is the arena where God gets his way has come close to you. He means the range of God's effective will, where God gets what God wants, has come near you. Now, the question that you have to answer as an individual and that will determine your eternal plight is, is that good news to you? How does it make you feel when I say God has his way perfectly over your thought life? Does that feel oppressive to you? How does it make you feel when I say What if God had his way perfectly over your sexual ethic? Does that feel oppressed? Does it feel oppressive to you to think of God having his way perfectly over how you talk to your kids, over over your work ethic? And if that does feel oppressive to you, what makes you think you'd like heaven? Because I'm gonna mess with you today. Because she's just cackling. Because in heaven, God gets his way perfectly. If you want to be where men get their way, if you want to be where men steal at will and are in rape at will and have their way at will, you can. It's called hell. But if you want to submit your kingdom to the kingdom of God, then guess what you get? Heaven. And I don't know about you, but there's something in me that cries out for the day when my little wicked heart tendency isn't to respond in insecure anger and lust. 
There's something in my heart that longs for the day that, that my natural instinct isn't to lust and covet after things. When, my, when the natural instinct of my heart isn't to respond in insecurity and anger and selfishness. And if you can relate to that desire to be transformed in the inside, then guess what? You get heaven. Then heaven's heaven for you where God gets his will. And guess what? If we refuse the will and reign of the kingdom of God here and now, we have no reason to think you'd enjoy heaven because it's where God gets his way perfectly. It's the place where his perfect will is done. Do you want God messing with your sexual ethic or do you demand full and, control, full and complete autonomy over your own little kingdom? See, one of the most fascinating and profound realities that I see in scripture, I think, is how scripture details how the same event, same person, same sermon, <laughs> same worship song, same God, can to one person be the most delightful, joy-filled, liberating experience, and to another be abhorrent, terrifying, dreadful experience. You guys never notice this in scripture? It's very interesting. A quick example for you. 2 Corinthians 2.14. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Just let that picture sit in your imagination. Spreads the knowledge, the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. It's what we spread if you're a Christian. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Both, same thing, same aroma. Christ of God, right? To one, a fragrance from death to death and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Just the fragrance of God amongst his people can smell to some of the sweetness of life and can smell to others of the stench of death. What a fascinating thing, isn't it? What's the difference? Well, of course, it's the internal disposition they hold. What's the, di what's the difference between a person who smells the fragrance and says, oh, lovely, <laughs> and the person who smells the fragrance and says, oh, God, yeah, horrible. What's the difference? It is the internal disposition in their heart towards the kingdom. It is. For those who have found, right, that their own wisdom comes up short, for those who have found their sins continually sabotaging their joy, for those who have found that it is actually their will that's part of the problem, the kingdom of God smells like life, right? It's a door to life, door to liberation, right? To those who still believe they know better than God, right? Those who believe that following their own wisdom will in the end give them satisfaction and joy, God's kingdom will be abhorrent to them, right? It is a threat to their self-determination. No one tells me what I do. I define myself, right? It's the air we breathe, right? And consequently, like if you like drink that Kool-Aid, when we insist on defining ourselves, which any sociologist would actually tell you pure self-definition is inherently impossible. So like a baby completely alone in the world would have no name, no self, no, no awareness, right? right? But if you would rather you define yourself, you then forfeit the ability to hear God speaking over your life that you are fully forgiven, that you are fully known, 
and that you are fully his child. It's a pretty big exchange, right? My point, to some, the announcement of the kingdom would be liberating. And to others, it would be oppressive. And at the root is their pride. That's what makes it either enjoyable or oppressive. Let me prove it to you. Here's why. It's why the religious elite hated Jesus. And sinners and prostitutes and outcasts clung to him. Because one group was full of self-righteous, arrogant pride, and the others knew they had no righteousness of their own to cling to. It was the same message, same Jesus, same kingdom, to some life and healing and light, and to others, they fled from the light in favor of the shadows. And of course, the great, the great question before all of us is how do you respond when Jesus takes a place of authority in the way you act and live? Is that good news to you, right? When he challenges the way you talk to your kids or challenges your laziness at work or challenges the way you handle finances, or you can say it this way, right? Does it feel oppressive to you, which I said earlier, right? So on the one hand, to our brokenness, stay with me, turn your brains on, don't, don't leave me yet. On the one hand, to our brokenness, his kingdom is confrontational, isn't it? So much so that Paul would liken entering the kingdom of God as a kind of death in Romans 6. And on the other hand, doesn't your heart long for the day when lust and coveting and insecurity is not the inner tendency of your heart, right? And in our honest moments, I think we all do want to be changed, really changed, and be the kind of person who would enjoy heaven, right? But for so many of us, right, we're okay with Jesus calling the shots, like on the highway, you know, we'll let Jesus, we'll let Jesus drive when things are easy. But when we get off road, Jesus, you better get in the back and close your eyes, you know? So I, let me take the wheel for a second, right? But if we will stay our insecure and anxious hand and trust God, trust that he actually knows best for what makes for human flourishing, then guess what? His kingdom comes near to you. And it's actually good news, right? And I found this idea of the kingdom so profoundly helpful because it explained to me why there are so many religious people who don't act or look or sound like Jesus at all in their actual life. Because for many, they said this prayer, they did this thing, gave mental assent to some seemingly irrelevant facts about God, but were still warring against his kingdom in their hearts, right? We still think we know better. In reality, we believe we'll be better off if we do the things that we think right instead of submitting to the things that God says is right, right? We want our ways over and above God so, so many times, right? And we do well to sit with the idea that if you don't like God's ways in your life now, you then would not like heaven, right? And while it may seem like submitting to his kingdom brings certain limitations, right? on what you think makes for life, I'd argue that the effects of his kingdom in your life far outweigh any perceived restrictions. Because look at how Jesus himself describes what the kingdom is. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised. And the poor have the good news preached. And that's how Jesus described the kingdom. Now, what happens when two kingdoms come in conflict with one another, right? What happens 
as often happens in my house, right? When your little sister climbs all over you and starts slapping you in the face and puts her sticky fingers all over your iPad game, right? Happens every day in my house, right? Not to me, but to my, you know, to my kids. Well, most kids or grown-ups will almost involuntarily display the same form of aggression and up the ante. So if you slap me, I'm going to slap you, then I'm going to push you over just to let you know you shouldn't slap me, right? You pulled in front of me driving? You challenged my sovereignty on the road? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull in front of you, I'm going to slam on the brakes, right? And teach you, right? Exactly, right? Amen, right? That's how kingdoms work. That's how it works with your little sister. It's how it works with nations. You challenge my will. You challenge my self-determination, my ability to define myself. I will show you that I can define myself by getting, you know, whatever, whatever it is, right? Whether it's kids, nations, domestic, international, that's how kingdoms work. When we're threatened, we threaten back and we up the ante. Pastor Todd Hunter used this illustration. What if you said to the IRS, I will not pay my taxes, Guess what the IRS is going to do? You, you threaten the IRS's kingdom? He's going to say, yes, yes, you will. And you say, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. They said, yes, you will. And if not, we will fine you. No. Still not going to pay my... I'm going to establish my kingdom the way I want it. I'm not going to give you any of my money. No. Okay. We will garnish your wages. I don't care. Okay. IRS would then say, we will begin to seize your assets. Right? Doesn't matter. Okay. You're going to jail, right? Doesn't matter if it's kids, governments, nations. When our kingdom is threatened, we threaten back and up the ante. Everyone does this, right? It's how wars happen. It's just how the world works. Everyone does this, except God. Listen, if you decide that you will, you're going to be the king of your own kingdom, right? If, if you turn your fist up to God and say, I will not follow you, I don't care about your ways. I don't care that you think you know how things go. I'm going to establish myself. I'm going to do my thing. You know what God says to you? Who ha- who, the only being in the universe who has the right to squash you like an ant. When we kind of, that kind of nonsense, right? You know what he says to you? Okay. When you tell God you will not submit to his kingdom, he does not threaten back. He does not dominate to control like we do. He says to you, okay, because God is a gentleman and he will not force anyone to be with him who does not want to be with him. He may woo with love, right? He may, as Hosea says, allure you with his compassion. He may, as Romans 2 says, employ his kindness to lead you to repentance, but he will not force you. We see this so clearly in 1 Samuel, where the people actually refuse God as king over them. And they say to the prophet, they say, we don't want God as king. Give us a man. We want a man as king, like every other nation, right? And when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. In other words, okay, because it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. God says, okay, 
Now he goes on to tell them, look, if you want a king, he's gonna take your chariots. He's gonna take your good vineyards. He's gonna take your daughters and your sons. He's gonna tax you. They said, we, we don't care, we want a king. And they rejected him. As Theus Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Now, it's fair to say, y'all, that this whole drama of God's kingdom versus man's kingdom or man choosing his own way over God's way and God inviting man back into that is the central theme of the entire Bible. It's fair to say it. And when we see it in 1 Samuel happening outright, but the entire story is God's kingdom being rejected. If you take a step back and look at the whole story of the Bible in the garden, God's kingdom and man's kingdom are one. They're not separated. They're one. God gets his way perfectly in Eden. It's everything, provision, safety, security, sustenance, fully vulnerable, fully loved, fully known. It's God's kingdom and man's kingdom together overlaying, right? Perfect communion. When humanity questioned God's goodness and behaved accordingly, it shattered the universe and heaven and earth were separated. And we have a whole lot of the Old Testament, God inviting men back into his kingdom. In a whole lot of the Old Testament, man refusing God's kingdom over and over and over again. Despite the rejection we see in 1 Samuel being done over and over, we see God continually inviting back in, continually calling, continually reaching out through prophet, priest, and king. So when Jesus comes, we're wrapping it up. See your eyes glazing over. When Jesus comes, I'm getting that indicator. <laughs> and, and he says, the kingdom of God is here. There is a way in which God's rule has come in Jesus. Everything you think of heaven, right? God's presence, vanquishing death, vanquishing sin and evil has come in Jesus. But as soon as you say that, you realize, wait a second, no, it's not. People still die. People are still enslaved in their sins. Evil, hating, lying, violence, injustice, all has its way on the earth. What do you mean it's come? And of course you're right, right? What Jesus is claiming is that in him, through him, when his disciples pray for and submit to his will and rule in their own hearts, you become a part of an underground rebellion against darkness, right? When you become yourself a beacon of light and life in the world through Jesus. So in some very real ways, y'all, you experience as a Christian through the Holy Spirit, heaven on earth. You do. We get his life. We get his joy. We get his goodness here and now. What does Jesus mean by being filled with living water? I mean, isn't that getting at sustenance and abundance here and now? But it's not in fullness. People still get sick. People still die. We still struggle with sin. And the great claim of God, right, is that what he started in Jesus will one day come in full fruition when Jesus returns and claims the reward of his suffering. That he will one day completely vanquish all evil and darkness and sin. Or as Revelation says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Do you get that? Are you seeing it? The beginning of the Bible, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of man, one and the same. Sin separates it. And what's at the end of the Bible? The kingdom of God coming to the kingdom of man again. That's the arc of the Bible. Now, I want to show you this really brilliant video. It's, it's about six minutes. Can we, can we hang? Okay, we can hang. Let's do it.
So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a a clear distinction. So you said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So, God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So, how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible was all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So, we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so, what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's 
healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. I don't know if you're catching that the Bible is the most fascinating and compelling book ever to, to you know, I mean, it's remarkable. This is where I want to land the plane today. We'll get out of here. Um, how do we bring the kingdom on earth? It's going to bring it back, Right. How does it come and by what means? Luke 17, 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst, or as KJV says, within you. So here's where we're going to land it, okay? According to Jesus, the kingdom of God does not come by external means that can be observed. In other words, pay attention, the kingdom of God will not be established in the earth by getting the right president in the White House. While good and right laws may reach for a more just society, and many Christians have given their lives to such worthy endeavors, and we should, the kingdom of God will not be established by politics or the powers of men. As Tolkien said, the strength of man has failed. And the way opened to the kingdom is only in and through the cross of Christ. Jesus said this in no uncertain terms when he said, I am the door, right? And there is only one person you have control over to push through that door. Guess who it is? Yourself. So while your life may be able to display and reflect the beauty of the kingdom of God to those around you, you only have authority to surrender one kingdom to God, and that is your own. In other words, what am I trying to say here? No matter what you do, 
No matter how you may try to control and influence, it will in the end be up to your children, your spouse, your coworker, or the individuals that make up a nation as to whether or not they will welcome the kingdom of God into their life. Therefore, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a prayer. Because in prayer, we are necessarily acknowledging our own limitations, aren't we? We can't make this happen, Lord. God, bring the wisdom of your rule and reign to bear on those around me. Bring the fruition of the cross to the lives of those around me, right? It is a request, y'all. And like most requests to God, there are things you can do to achieve that request, and there are things you cannot do. What you can do is surrender your little kingdom to God. That's what you can do, right? And if you don't, why are you praying for his kingdom to come? It's a false prayer in that way. You just put on a show. If you're not willing to surrender your own kingdom, don't pray the prayer. You just put on a show. What you may not do is surrender the will of your husband, or your children, or your friends to God. Only they can do that. It is their God-given dignity. In some ways, it is what it means to be in the image of God, to be able to choose. Now, he or she may see the joy and the lightness and the liberty of heart that comes when you surrender to God, but you cannot make that choice for them. Therefore, Jesus teaches us to pray. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth. On the one hand, we're asking God to help us ourselves. Help us see the wisdom of your ways, God. Help our own, help my own wondering heart fully trust you and fully submit to you. On the other hand, we're asking that in the earth, in those around us, that they would understand the wisdom of the will of God and surrender it to them themselves. And on the other hand, all right, we're asking that he come back. Bring your kingdom in fully. Come back and heal the world, Lord. Come back and vanquish injustice and death and sickness and cancer and hatred and racism. It is a prayer that I can get into. But it's no good in praying for his will to come if you are not willing yourself to surrender your own kingdom to him. Amen. If you are not willing to yield to the wisdom of God's ways, to allow his rule and reign to bear its weight on you, then you will never know the fruits of the kingdom in your own life. And the fruits of the spirit to you will be, you will be looking from the outside in to Christianity for the rest of your life if you do not surrender your own little kingdom to God. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? It's always gonna feel like you're on the outside looking in, wondering why they're so happy. Why, why are they singing so loud? Why are they giving their life to the poor? Why are they fighting injustice? Why are they loving people so cra crazy, man? They love people, right? See, that comes when we say yes to the kingdom of God. And only when that comes. The kingdom of God is not about the strength of men. The kingdom of God is not about your love. The kingdom of God is not about all the things that you can establish in the earth by your own strength. The kingdom of God is when his will and reign comes in Jesus. And it is an easy thing to pray for if you ask me, right? My prayer for us 
is that your eyes would be opened to his love for you in this season and that you would find your heart submitting more and more to his goodness. And as his kingdom establishes itself in your own heart and life in new life-giving ways, your heart's cry would become, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's stand and pray.